The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode 642 for Sunday, January 29th, 2017. Yeah, greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where the goal is for you and us, all of us, each, to learn at least four new things. How do we do that? Well, we answer your questions, we share your tips, we share cool stuff found. That's how we get to the goal. And most often it works. So it's not really a goal, it's just a system. We get together each week and that's what we do. And we build all the stuff so that it works. Sponsor for this episode is Blue Apron, where you can go to blueapron.com slash MGG and get your first three meals for free, shipped for free to you. Awesome stuff. I can't wait to tell you a little bit more about it. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. How goes it, Mr. John F. Braun? Yeah, it's gone. It comes and it goes. Kind of... uh Kind of like waxes, a, waxes and wanes. It waxes and wanes. Well, hopefully it does so poetically, my friend. Uh, I found I stumbled onto a tip this week that I want to share with you. Have you ever gone to a website? If you use Safari to to manage your passwords uh, with iCloud Keychain, or even just with Safari there, but also with iCloud Keychain, you ever go to to a website where you have multiple logins? Uh, I noticed it at PayPal this week because you know I've got a personal PayPal account, then we've got. PayPal accounts for, you know, Mac Observer and Backbeat Media and even Mac Geek Cab uh, because I was migrating all, all of your premium subscriptions over, which, by the way, MacGeekCab.com slash premium will show you how to sign up and all that stuff. But we're slowly migrating those those subscriptions over. Thank you, everyone, for your patience. For those of you that uh, are renewing soon, you've probably gotten emails from me about all that. But anyway, I, I needed to log in and it kept defaulting to my Backbeat Media account. And of course, PayPal logs you out after 15 minutes of inactivity. So I would be doing like a little bit of programming, working with Adam, massaging something. Then it was like, all right, let's log into PayPal. Let's see what it says. Crap. Okay. I'm logged out and Safari's defaulting me back to my Backbeat Media account. Then it was driving me crazy. So I started looking at why is it defaulting me to my Backbeat Media account, even though every time I'm choosing the Mac Geekab one. And I noticed, I looked in keychain access the first place i looked was safari passwords they're all there but there's nothing in there to me that indicated which one was the default and which one wasn't but in looking in keychain access i have two keychains that contain paypal passwords one of course is my login keychain and then the other is my icloud keychain and these passwords all seem to exist in both i don't know if that's because i used all these types of things before we had icloud keychain but in the ones for BackbeatMedia.com, in the comments, and this is where it gets weird, but just in the comments section is the word default. Guess what? Removing default, lowercase, from comments on my Backbeat Media PayPal uh, logins, and, and I did it on both because it was on both my lo- the one in the login keychain and also the one in iCloud, um, and moving them moving the word default or putting the word default in to the Mac Geek Cab one, guess what? That's all it takes. That's what it looks at. So literally the word default in the comment 
comments section uh, in Keychain Access for your web form password is how it decides which one to pull up by default. And actually, I had several that were listed as default, so I don't know how it was deciding which one to do first, but it certainly was deciding. And I pulled the word default out of everything and only put it in the ones for uh, the Mac Keycap account. And now that's what comes up by default. Pretty interesting, huh, John? Huh, that's a nice little hack. I know, well, yeah, it's a hack. That's exactly what it is. Not not on our side, but a hack on Apple's side. To, yeah, just throw the word default into the comments section there. Um, and it's a, obviously a user editable field. So very strange, but that's that. I, I thought maybe when I first saw it there, I thought, no, there's no way that they're actually parsing on this. They've just put this here so that we as the user know that it's what it said as the default. There's got to be a, a hidden field, but I figured I'd try it anyway. And that's sort of the, the best lesson I could ever teach anybody is just try it anyway, especially if you've got a backup. What's what's the harm? So it worked. Perfect stuff. I loved it. That's how it works. Fun, huh, John? Yeah, if you're using that sort of thing. I use both. I, I mean, I, I use one password, but I also use um, iCloud Keychain. And they they kind of work fine in parallel with each other. If I change something, uh, you know, if I change a password, they both sort of notice and ask me if I want to save it. And the nice part is, yes, I like if I need to look for a password, much easier to look for it in one password. But if I'm on iOS having it in iCloud keychain, which is just there by default, way easier than having to use one password or any third party thing. Cause it's just baked right in and it's right there. So that, yeah, I use both. It doesn't, they, like I said, they work great in parallel. In fact, so, so there you go. That's my first tip for the day. Are we ready to move on? Excellent. All right. Sure. Scott had a question. Scott said, my wife and I are both set up with individual iCloud accounts and we have done the iCloud family share option too. So we can share calendars and app purchases and all of that. What I'd like to be able to do, he says, is compile a grocery shopping list that uh, we can add, edit, delete on all both our iPhones. But my wife can see when she's out shopping because she seems to be the one that does that. I had a look under the notes app, but I can't see to see a way to share my notes with her. I'm using a Mac with El Capitan because Apple won't let me upgrade to Sierra and she's using an iPhone. So the app needs to work cross platform too. any suggestions. So we are living in that world here and we use something called our groceries. Now, um, our groceries, I'm trying to think if that works. I think, yeah, it totally works on the web. Yeah. So what you do is it's a free app. Uh, you, your wife, in, in your case, your wife would have downloaded it onto her iPhone. But if you had an iPhone, you could download it there too. And uh, when you sign, when you start using it, you just start using it. And there's a list there, but you can assign an email address to your lists and you can assign the same email address to all of your lists and that's really kind of the key. And of course, when you add the email address to it, it, it says, all right, well, I got to send an email to that address and confirm that I can let you in. Um, and, and then it, and then it does. And when you sign in on the web, it actually, you create a password um, and you can see your lists on the web as well. So our groceries, it works really well. It's totally built for exactly what you're talking about here, having one list that everybody shares and we actually started using it only recently because it has great 
uh, integration. It has a, there's an, there's an Alexa skill for it, right? So we can say, and I'm not going to say the, the word, but we can say trigger, uh, tell our groceries to add, you know, ice cream to the list. We use that one a lot. And sure enough, it adds it to the list. And the nice part is that list is with whomever needs it whenever. So, it, you know, it used to be, and, and here my wife is often the one that does the shopping and it, it was not rare for her to, you know, either call or text us and say, Hey, can somebody screen, you know, take a picture of the grocery list on the side of the fridge and, and send it to me so that I have it while I'm shopping that that problem has gone away too. So, uh, so it, it works. There's so many great things. So anybody I see in our, our chat room here, we've got some other alternatives. One's called grocery IQ. And then the, uh, and then, and that's from both, uh, Jim D and, and, uh, Quran. And then, uh, who else is it? Any list from Joel F. So we'll put all of these in the, in the show notes, but, uh, it's great stuff. Fun. I like it. It's good. Do you use anything like this, John? Or do you, you still rock it old school? I'm, I'm confused here because it seems the indication here is that the notes app will not allow you to do this. And as far as I can tell, he's on, he's on El Capitan. So he can't, I, I understand can't. that. Yeah. Well, but I'm looking here and it upgrade your notes app. I'm looking at an Apple support article and they seem to indicate that you need iOS nine or at least El Capitan in order to use some of the enhanced features. So, I'm kind of scratching my head why notes would not be an option here. It, it would seem, right? Um, are you able to share a note with someone on El Capitan? Because I'm running El Capitan here, and I certainly can't. Well, it's saying here with notes in iOS 9 and OS, OS 10 El Capitan, you can turn a list into an interactive checklist. Yes, that's, that's correct. Right, you get all of that stuff, but you don't get the... Um, so you don't get the sharing. Okay, you, I mean, you can huh. share a note like by sending it to someone, but, but in terms of interactive or, or collaboration on a note, no, that, that that's Sierra. Only. All right. So you need the latest right? Sierra. And I believe iOS 10 you need as well. Not iOS nine. I think you have to have iOS 10 and Sierra to do the, the note editing. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's, uh, but but also you know in terms of groceries, I, I think an, an a a single purpose app is arguably better than a note because the note can sort of get to be unruly if if you don't agree and stick to a formatting convention. Whereas with something like you know our groceries or, or I'm sure any of these others, you're you know it it is built to do this, and so checking things off the list. And I mean, what's cool is. If we tell, you know, our, our little uh, Alexa unit to add something and it's already there, it will just say, okay, I've added a second one of those. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, I don't, uh, again, I'm looking at our chat room here. Yeah. Uh, and I see at least one person says, I use notes via iCloud for sharing notes with my wife who has El Capitan. So I think it is possible. Is it? I mean, yeah, I would I would not recommend using notes for this. I mean, there's there's literally free alternatives that that are going to work a whole lot better for you than just, you know, kind of a, a blob of of, you know, manually organized text for this. 
but I didn't, I don't, I don't see a way. Um, maybe on I mean, the, if there web? is a way that, well, if there is a way, what you're going to see is if you look at a note, you're going to see a little icon that shows a little person and a little plus, And that's how you do the share. So no, I definitely don't have that. Maybe huh. on the web, maybe you can do it on iCloud.com on El Capitan. That that's possible. But okay, yeah, Kevin's saying via the web interface is how he does it. Yeah, okay, yeah, all right. So I mean, that would work, but there's no reason to 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 do that when you've got all these great apps that that we just mentioned here. So, uh, in the quick tip category here, Brian has a question, and we've got an answer that will turn into a nice little quick tip. Brian asks, he says, um. I have a late 2012 Mac mini with a core i7 over time. I have increased the Ram to 16 gigs and swapped out the spinning drive for a 512 gig SSD from crucial. I recently purchased uh, an LG 27 inch 4k ultra HD monitor thinking I could gain some screen real estate and end up using a resolution beyond 1080p. I connected the 4k monitor via display port and much to my dismay, Apple has decided to restrict resolutions in Mac OS Sierra to scaled and he did he sent us a screenshot uh where when he goes to uh the system preferences display and he chooses that display it says you can use the resolution of default for display or something called scaled where all you see is default in the middle and then several variants heading towards larger text on the left and variants heading towards more space more screen real estate on the right but you're not able to pick individual resolutions. And, uh, and he says, the interesting thing is when I use VMware Fusion to run various Windows versions, all of them, Windows 10 and 7, he says, can scale for 4K and I can adjust the resolution manually and get far more granular with it. So I started experimenting with this, John. And I went into system preferences display on my Mac. And I have two monitors on my uh, iMac in the office. Well, there's the one built in. And on that one, it says scaled. And when you choose scaled, I all, all I see is larger text to more space with default in the middle. And then when I go on my very old ancient, I think it's older than my children. Well, not quite uh, cinema display, cinema display HD or cinema HD display, whichever the one with the Lucite thing around it. The very, very first one Apple came out with it still running, by the way. Um, all I see is four resolutions on that one. 1920 by 1200 and all the way down to 1024 by 640, but only four of them. I'm like, I've seen more than this. So I brought in our old friend, the option key. And when I clicked, so I went back to default for display on both of them. And when I clicked scaled this time, I held down the option key. Now on my internal display, I see, I think six or seven different resolutions listed None of them, like the whole larger text to more space thing that obscures the actual resolutions went away uh, and I get far more. And the same is true on my cinema display. When I hold down the option key and hit scaled, I see far more resolution options there. So I'm hoping that this will work for uh, our friend as well. So there you go. Holding down the option key, man. It's good stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder why they hide things from you. Well, it's Apple. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. My guess is these are the common ones. 
And, uh, you know, I don't know. I, yeah. I don't know why they make these choices, but it is nice to be able to get granular. And the nice part is they've left that in there. Hold down the option key and you're good to go. Fun, yeah, right? Things may look a bit wonky. I mean, I'm looking at some of the resolutions that they suggest when you uh, hold down the key. And some of them look like 3200 by 1800. I think that would be kind of. Yeah, things would get weird. For things sure. Would get, it would be distorted. Very much distorted. That's I think right. what it shows you are ones where everything will look pretty. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it's even on this machine, which is a 27 inch non retina iMac, I think from 2011. When I go to scaled, I get, um, oh, there we are. And the, and the option key is kind of a toggle thing. It seems to stick once you've done it, but I get five resolutions from 2560 by 440 all the way down to 1280. And then if I hold down the option key, I can go, I get many, many more. I don't even, I can't even count quickly, but they go all the way down to 800 by 600 now. So I get a real, I can, I can muck with it. I don't, I'm not going to change it while we're doing the show here because I like where all my windows are and I don't want to have to put them back. But yeah. Uh, and I seem to recall there, I don't think it's necessary anymore, but I think in the early days, uh, another option that uh, you would have to hold down a key to bring up would be uh, uh, rotation, which uh, is always kind of an interesting option because I mean, yeah, I'm not I don't, do I don't know why either. they put it there often because <laughs> who reads their screen sideways or upside down? Well, maybe some people do. Maybe oh. you have a need. Yeah, totally. No, I've seen people use screens on their side, uh, especially if you're coding. If you've got a screen turning it on its side um, where you've got it in, you know, what I would call portrait mode instead of landscape mode can mm -hmm. can be really handy because now you're scrolling a whole lot less. It's actually kind of cool. Yep. Yeah. So you I get this very it. tall thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it shows up. Yeah. But before you used to have to do a hand wave to, to get the, the option to show up, but I'm looking right here, at least on my mini, it gives me the option immediately. Standard 90, 180 or 270. Right, right, right. Fun. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it is fun. All right. All right. Good stuff. Fun. We have a weird tip, I think, coming up that's worth sharing here, John. And it's from John, but it's not you. But it is about photos, which I know is something you like, too. He says, I have just worked out the cause of a problem I'm having in Sierra's photos that I initially assumed was due to corruption in my photos library, but actually seems just to be bad software design. John says, just before I noticed this problem, I had issues with Carbon Copy Cloner failing to back up because it was taking too long, a bit concerning as a part, apart from uh, my regular time machine backups. My last carbon copy cloner backup was about a year ago. I narrowed this down to my photos library and used the option command whilst launching photos to repair the library. Unfortunately, this got stuck at about 97%. And after several hours, I forced quit. Then photos wouldn't even launch. Eventually I ran the repair, but left it while I went out for the day. When I got home, it had completed. Um, one little aside there that I want to share, if you are doing a repair or a migration uh, in photos, you know, from if you still have like an old iPhoto library or doing any, anything like that, open up the console and you can see the progress. You can even filter down by photo or photos, uh, you know, in a live filter so that you can see what's happening, because a lot of times, yeah, it will get stuck at some percentage point and you can see whether something is truly happening or 
if it's just stuck sitting there and I've, I've been in that spot. So I know how you feel and I know why you quit because it seemed like it was stuck, but in, it turns out it probably wasn't. Um, and, and you, you just let it happen. But if you're impatient, like me opening the console and filtering down to the word photo or photos can, uh, can likely help you get a real picture of what's happening there. Um, continuing with John, he says later, I noticed that various people, people capitalized P because there are people now in photos showed as gray boxes. And when I clicked on them, it showed a larger gray box with a spinning white gear in the middle that even if I left overnight, didn't ever show the photo. I assumed this was due to the corruption related to the previous issue that needed repair. However, after several occasions of Googling and failing to find a solution, I eventually noticed all of the people this affected were work colleagues. I then realized that because I wanted to keep my photos library primarily for family and holiday photos, uh, he says, I had hidden things like eBay listing photos, document photos, work photos, etc. So the explanation was that the people whose photos were all hidden showed us gray boxes with a spinning white gear. He says, I've reported this as a bug to Apple, but whether they regard it to be a bug or just poor software design, I don't know. I just thought it was worth sharing with others, he says, as I spent quite a while trying to work this out. Yeah, so if you're hiding different photo types, it seems the people associated with those photos get hidden as well if they're lumped in together. Very, very interesting how photos, again, I guess we're back to uh, Apple doing its part to, uh, I don't know. <laughs> obfuscate? Yeah, obfuscate things. I like that word. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Cool. Thanks for the tip, John. Very, very good stuff. We have a tip from Dave, too. So we've had a tip from John and a tip from Dave, and, and they're not you and me. But I'm going to share Dave's tip now, unless there's anything else you want to talk about with John's, with his photos one, John? Go. Go. All right. Dave writes, he says, I, I'm a longtime listener, huge fan. Uh, he says, I'm just now listening to episode 640. And heard the question about running a Retina MacBook Pro in closed lid mode while running two displays. I had to take a minute and write you guys as I've recently discovered something on this issue. I have a mid-2012 15-inch non-Retina MacBook Pro and had been happily using it in closed lid mode with a vertical dock from Hinge Docks and an external display keyboard and mouse. I've been doing this for several years with no problems. Um... And I use the machine for web development and typically hit the CPU pretty hard with a Linux virtual machine running VirtualBox, all sorts of other things. My company says recently switched to using zoom.us for video conferencing, which has a dedicated app and works quite well. My dev team uses the screen share feature regularly when we need to collaborate on a project. When sharing my screen, this app streams video at the full native resolution. And he says in his case, 2560 by 1440. So it must be a yeah, right. That's size screen. He says, adding this CPU intensive task on top of everything else going on during a typical workday, and I would experience some major system performance issues. The MacBook Pro would become almost unresponsive. I've been trying to track it down so far with no luck. iStat menus and activity monitor would both show kernel task using the most CPU by far, typically around 300%. He says, I finally found an Apple support article explaining that in certain conditions, when an app needs a lot of CPU power, the OS will attempt to throttle the CPU back using kernel task as sort of the, the scapegoat, if you will. It just assigns the CPU to kernel task and therefore it throttles it back. This is not the same as hardware throttling it itself due to heat. Some of the conditions were high heat readings, low voltage, 
faulty battery, etc. My battery needed replacing anyway, so I replaced it with a new one from OWC, but had no improvement. Finally, I took the MacBook Pro out of the dock, plugged all my peripherals back in, and no more kernel task throttling. Seems simple enough, right? He says the MacBook Pro must have been running too hot with the lid closed inside the dock, so software throttling kicked in. The funny thing here is that my temperatures right now are about the same or sometimes higher than before. Now I'm running the internal display and the external, so that may have something to do with it. My guess, he says after all of this, is that there must be a separate set of rules for CPU throttling when the lid is closed versus when it's open. Even though my temps are the same or sometimes higher, the fans rarely run anymore. Uh, I haven't encountered a single case of CPU throttling, he says. So he says, I've since purchased a laptop cooler tray with a fan to try and keep it as cool as possible while working. He says, I don't think the issue was the dock. I tested running with the lid closed uh, on top of the laptop cooler and I get the exact same performance problems as before. So this is very interesting that Apple, as we said back in 640, when we were talking about this, John, that they totally support closed lid mode, but clearly they've put some things in place to keep you from overcooking yourself uh, when you're in that mode. And sometimes that's going to mean getting actually less out of your CPU just because you're in closed lid mode. This, I think this is worth Worth some more testing. If anybody out there has experienced this and has any uh, either anecdotal or, or, you know, direct evidence as to, to this happening or specifically not happening, I'd love to hear about it because this is the first I've heard of this, but it totally makes sense. So I'd be really curious to hear about it. Have you heard anything about this, John? You know, I seem to recall something. So one thing that's key in the clamshell mode, which, uh, I didn't notice initially here. Yeah. Or closed display mode is what they call Clo it. Right? Yeah. Closed lid mode, I think, or something. Yeah. Right. But yes. Well, I actually have the mode. article here. So use your Mac notebook computer in closed display mode. The other thing there I notice is that they seem to have changed the layout of the support articles. They yes. look different. Different font or something. But anyways, one requirement that you may want to keep in mind, and I seem to recall this back in the mists of time here. One thing they say here is that you have to be connected to an AC power adapter. Right. And I seem to recall something in my mind here that if, if you were in clamshell mode and you were on battery power, uh, certain things would happen. And I think including uh, perhaps uh, scaling things back a bit. Sure. Yeah, that would make sense. I, with, I mean, with him, he's obviously on power because he's connected to the hinge dock, which is, you know, naturally powering the thing. Which I would think, yes. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. power for you. But, uh, Very interesting. Very cool stuff. I love it. This is, I, I love this stuff. You know what else I love, John? I love tasty food, man. And I really actually like cooking with my family. It's really fun. And Blue Apron is our first sponsor for this episode. And if you visit blueapron.com slash MGG, you can get the ingredients. And these are fresh, great, tasty ingredients. And... Recipe is almost the wrong word because it doesn't quite describe it well enough. These are like picture based in or picture laden. I mean, there's there's written instructions, too, but these are instructions. It's a how to use these ingredients to make this awesome meal full meal. We're not just talking about, you know, it's just going to make your entree and you have to worry about the sides or anything. No, no, this is a full meal. And if you visit blueapron.com slash MGG, you get three free meals and they'll all be shipped to you for free. 
And we're talking tasty stuff. Pimento cheeseburgers is on the menu for this week. Pesto shrimp and gnocchi. Spinach and sweet potato quesadillas. Uh, That's on the family plan. They have a two-person plan as well. Seared chicken and pan sauce. Crispy barramundi. Sicilian cauliflower pizza. uh, Cumin-crusted pork. Really tasty stuff. And like I said, these how-tos, and they're beautifully printed and stuff. You could keep these and then go, if you like one of these recipes, uh, you could go get more ingredients yourself, of course, and, uh, and you know, approximate this same thing. And now you've sort of added something new to your, your arsenal, you know, of, of things when planning your menu. So it's really fun. And because you get this how-to that's printed, it makes it way easier for the entire family to participate. I know with us... Uh, we all like to cook to be perfectly honest. And, you know, before we had kids, Lisa and I cooked together a lot. I cooked, uh, you know, for her, she would cook for me and we cook together, but now we've just sort of gotten into a routine. And the hard part about that routine is, you know, Lisa has a lot of these recipes and, and sort of the, the, the processes even, even more importantly in her head. And so it's, it's difficult for us to really participate with each other. She can sort of delegate out, but with these instructions, we're all starting from the same spot and we have all the instructions out there. And, and so we can follow this stuff. It's really, really great, really tasty, great ingredients. They ship it to you. Uh, so you got to check this out. Go to blueapron.com slash M G G and you get your first three meals for free with free shipping. Blue apron guarantees freshness on every ingredient and it, Make sure your delivery arrives ready to cook or they'll take care of it for you because that's who they are. You're going to love how it, how much fun it is, how great it tastes. Check it out. Blueapron.com slash MGG. Our thanks to Blue Apron for sponsoring this episode. All right, John. You know what else I like talking about? I like talking about routers. I don't know, if you, fig- I don't know if you figured that out. What's a router? A router is that thing that you put between all of your network and the rest of the internet. And it does a couple of things, right? It, it, uh, it shares your internet connection, whatever you get from, uh, from your ISP with all your devices. Oftentimes it creates your wireless network for you. Most of the time, that's how they're set up. Provides some security, all of that good stuff. Scott has a comment about router security, John, that I'd like to share. If that's all right with you. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so Scott says, uh, listening to Mac Geekab 640, he says, I want to provide my advice on all networking issues. Number one, regardless of ISP, do not use the ISP's equipment to manage your home security. Even if the ISP has benevolent reasons to check your connection and tell you about your security, the fact of the matter is they have access to your network. Do you really trust them to have that type of view? He says, I use a router running DDWRT separating my home network from my ISP. And he says, number two, do you trust your ISP with your Wi-Fi? Folks like Comcast and Xfinity have a setting to share your Wi-Fi as part of their global network. Do you trust them with that? He says, what about AirPrint? He, he goes on and on. So he says, if, if you don't manage and con- it's, a, it's a good lesson. Uh, if you don't manage and control your network, you better trust your ISP because they have control over you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's, he's right about that. Um, that said, ISPs tend to ship pretty decent routers today. Um, and, and we were having a discussion on our Mackie cab Facebook group about, 
about routers actually as, as we were prepping, as I was prepping kind of the agenda for today's show. And, uh, and somebody was saying, somebody was asking about bang for the buck with routers and actually several people sort of piled onto that request saying, yeah, you, know, you talk about all these routers on the show. What, how do I, you know, I would be, I would love to hear what you, what advice you have in terms of bang for the buck. And, and as I, as I was just sort of, you know, stream of consciousness typing, I found myself, what I said was, and, and I, and I believe this, there's really no reason to go out. If all you want to spend on a router is, you know, somewhere between 50 and a hundred bucks, there's really no reason to go out and buy a router. Um, I wouldn't, there's nothing in that range that I would recommend over just using the router that your cable company ships you. Um, assuming that they do ship you one, it's probably going to be better than whatever you're going to go out and buy for 50 to a hundred bucks. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are fine routers at that price, but they're not going to have like super great Wi-Fi. They're not going to have super fast CPUs. They're just going to be average run of the mill routers and your cable company is probably going to give you something better. And here's the thing, your cable company, because they're providing you a router every year, you can go back to them and say, Hey, I want an upgrade. And it just comes as part of the fee you're paying regularly. My feeling is that if you're going to go out and buy a router for yourself, you're going to, the point is to keep that thing and run it for somewhere between three, maybe to five years. I mean, it beyond that, probably not. Right. But, uh, but if you're going to do that, I think it's worth spending, you know, it, the, the, the right routers to get started about the $150 range. Certainly you can go up to like 500 and I'm talking about standalone routers and kind of leaving mesh out of the discussion for this week, but uh, because there's a lot of homes where one router is enough. And, uh, and so I think, you know, moving your, your bar up to that, 150 number. I don't think you're going to need to spend 500. Most of you. In fact, I'm about to tell you about a router mm. that sits at like 225, maybe even 200. That is absolutely my favorite standalone router that I, really that I've ever encountered to be perfectly honest. Um, and I'll talk about that in a minute. I know I'm teasing a little bit here, but I'm curious as to your thoughts on this, John, as, as I've spouted about here uh, for you. Uh, I personally have what my ISP provided, and then currently my my router is the uh, is the Eero. But you never had a router uh, from your ISP, though, did you? We're talking I'm, about routers, not cable yes, modems. Yes, I, I understand that. Okay, right, right. cable yeah. modem. Yeah, I'm I'm just laying out the scenario here. So I have the okay. cable modem, and I've always had what they've provided. Yeah, and provide my own router, but. Uh, a little while ago, so my my parents have a different ISP. At one point, they said, "Hey, your uh, you know your crummy uh, Doxus two thing. Uh, we we want to give you something better, right?" And before, I had them in a situation where the uh, the airport was their uh, router, right? Uh, providing the wireless and, of course, the the routing among their their things. But then, when they shipped this new modem, this is an all in one. That's a, kind of a co branded thing. It's Xfinity, but it's it's actually an Aris. Yeah, R R I S. Yeah. And at that point, you know, I looked at everything that that provided. Um, I, I was given or made aware of the password and changed it, so you of could uh, change some of the advanced settings on it. It's really not a bad router at all. So it mm-hmm. provides. It, you know, it provides the Ethernet ports, and it also provides uh, 802.11ac. 
yeah. you know, I hooked it up, tried it, provisioned it. Um, that was kind of frustrating. Um, I, I got bounced to like three different people before they were able to provision it properly. One of them even, you know, this was the kind of a fish shake. You and know, this, one was, guy this was, was Xfinity, to, right? Correct. It's so weird because I've, I mean, their, their provisioning process, I've, I've done it because I've, you know, tested a bunch of cable modems or whatever over the last year. Um, I've provisioned probably six different cable modems and haven't talked to a single rep. You just plug your computer directly into the thing and it gets yeah. an IP and you plug in your account information and it provisions the modem. You're good to go. <laughs> That's how it's supposed to work, but it yeah. didn't. It kept it kept yeah. getting caught in this loop where it kept going back to step one, and got I'm it. like, oh man. So then I got on the yeah, phone. Yeah, then you have to get on the phone. Sure. Then yeah, someone, yeah. I don't know what the problem was, but someone. I finally on the third try got someone who knew what was going on and sure. fixed it. Sure. One guy was actually like, well, I think we got to send out a you know charge you for a service call, and I'm like, no, 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 Dude, no, no, your no, stuff no. doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. So you promise. So it sounds like to 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 reel you back in from this tangential story here that you you tend to agree that that if that the the modems that sorry the routers that you've seen coming from ISPs when the ISP provides it and I get that yours doesn't but but the ones that you've seen uh are are adequate capable oh it's fine yeah, yeah. and i even decided to pull the airport out of the mix because it was actually a more uh, their airport was the cable modem a router that they provided was more capable than the airport. So I'm like, right. you know what? Let's take it out of the equation. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So I, so I, I really, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily not use what they offer, which I think is what Scott's trying to say. He's like, you know, trust no one, which I, I appreciate I get the that. sentiment. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. You know, so, so here's the thing it, again. And, and we've got, um, Andy in the chat room reminding us about the TP link C seven and, and you know, even the C eight and C nine are, are, I think there's a C eight, isn't there? But there's certainly a C nine. They're, they're all available. Oh, yeah. In, yeah, in that, you know, probably $100 and even sub $100 range. And they are very capable routers. They're not the best Wi-Fi. They don't have the best Wi-Fi range on them, to be brutally honest. But they're okay. Again, I don't. I just don't think they're going to be a whole lot better uh, than what you're going to get from your cable company, if at all. In fact, I think the cable company might provide you a, a better router than those in terms of, of reach and all of that stuff. So I, I feel like, you know, if you're looking at this and saying, well, I'm, I, you know, I'm going to spend $70 on this router, uh, you know, this TP-Link thing. Well, why not look at something a little bit more? And, and I'm, like I said, I'm about to tell you about something that's, that's, you know, triple that price in the, you know, 200 to 220 range. Um, but it, it's, it's worth it um, in terms of getting true wireless range, true speed and all of that stuff. And this router, uh, I've been testing, as I said last week, the new Synology RT2600AC. So this is Synology's second router. And yes, you know I'm a huge fan of Synology's disk stations. Uh, that's not necessarily why I like their router. In fact, when they came out with the RT1900AC, I was curious about it. We talked about it here. Um, it certainly was on my short list of routers. But my one hesitation was... How far is Synology going to go with this? You know, how many uh, for how many years am I going to be able to use this router with software updates? This is, you know, is this just a flash in the pan in terms of of a change to their product line or are they really committed to this? With the RT2600AC, 
I feel that question has been answered, uh, not only with the existence of this router, but with the software updates that keep coming for the previous one. And the software is a huge part of this. You know, John, I've been a fan of the uh, DDWRT third-party firmware for a long time. I can't, uh, you know, I wouldn't, like, there was nothing else that I could live with using as my main router. I mean, I would test all kinds of other things. And certainly with the mesh stuff, I mean, the way that wireless works is is stellar. But in terms of managing my network, I, there were some things about DDWRT that just gave me the flexibility to do what I wanted to do. SRM is what Synology calls their router manager software. And it's the nice part is it's like, even though the routers are only a couple of years old in terms of the product line, SRM feels like a, you know, 10 year mature product because it's based on disk station manager DSM. It's that same type of web interface. You get really easy to do stuff, but immensely powerful. You don't have to dig deep. If you just want to set up a, a network, you can just set up a quick network and you're good. But if you want to go nuts, you can go really nuts with this thing. And I just, I haven't hit a wall yet. So this podcast actually is uh, our Skype connection is happening over the, the 2600 AC, John, I have been running it as my main edge router for a week here. Uh, it is the first time in 10 years that I truly feel like I won't be going back to DDWRT anytime soon. I can do everything I want to do with this, even all my crazy geeky stuff. And this router rocks. The Wi-Fi on it is killer. It's um, it's an AC 2600 router, which means... It's 800 megabits per second on the 2.4 gigahertz and 1733 on the 5 gigahertz. And the reason it can do that is because both of those radios are 4x4 four four radios, meaning there's four antennas. It's 802.11ac wave 2, which means it can go up to full you know, 160 megahertz bandwidth if the clients support it. And of course, I don't have any clients that'll support that. But what it does is because it has these four radios... Kind of like the Netgear Orbi, right? Remember we talked about the crazy backhaul on that Netgear Orbi and how good it was? Four by four radios. These things, because there's more antennas, there's more streams happening and they're able to kind of maximize their usage for clients. It's amazing. I, I used to run three um, access points in my house with my quasi mesh. With this, I turned off the access points. And I get full bandwidth everywhere in the house. It's insane. And because the software is fantastic, they use something called Smart Connect, John, which has, as we've talked about lately, the router participating in that discussion of whether or not your client should be on the 2.4 or the 5 gigahertz band. And here's the even cooler part, John. You can control how it makes that decision. And by default, it's just on auto, but you can change it to custom. It's called the wireless smart connect scheme. And there's two sets of parameters. One is based on signal strength. So you can say if the 2.4 gigahertz signal is greater than X, then that means that the device is close enough. Bounce them to the five. If it's less than this on the five, bounce them back to the 2.4 and you can do load balancing. So you can say, look, if either one of these is, you know, loaded it to 80% capacity or more, bounce it to the other one. And that's that's like the defaults, but you can change those if you want, if you want to get crazy. So it's just, it's really, really well done. Port forwarding, the firewall, 
is super easy to use. I've never had a firewall user interface graphically that's as simple as this. I wanted to block some packets coming in and out the other day. I just put it in and then I realized it wasn't working because it was at the bottom of my firewall chain or too late in the chain. And I had other rules that were allowing them. So I just dragged it up and boom, then it started blocking those packets. Um, really nice. cool. Yeah. It's re- I mean, the, like I remember the- reading. Yeah. I remember re- re- reading up a bit on this whole uh, uh, band steering, I guess they call it. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, that's the right term to use, I think. Where it's yeah. like, no, 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 no. You, you, you don't, you don't want to make that choice. You want to make this choice. Yeah. Yeah. Because the client sometimes gets it wrong. The client like, oh, doesn't the strongest, know. Right. It's, hey, there's the strongest signal. I better choose that. It's like, well, no, it's not such a great idea. Yeah. I have more I information in, in, than you. Right. In edge cases. Um, that may not be the the best strategy. Absolutely, right. That's right. Yes, that, that no, this, uh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh no, I like this. I'm I'm looking at the uh, description of the. So wait, how do they get twenty six hundred? What numbers add up? So we're adding. Anyways. we're adding 800, 800 megabits oh. on the two point four channel, hmm. and seventeen thirty three on the five gigahertz. So we're at twenty five thirty three. That's where they get twenty six hundred. Yeah. Oh, okay. Close enough. Yeah, it's close right. enough. What but I do this, like is the VPN support here. Dude. So I'm looking at all the, the wonderful features that they have. So having a VPN built into a router is, is a nice feature that not all of them have. This is like the best VPN software I've ever used because it's the same. It's actually better VPN software than you and I get in than any of us get in the Synology Disk Station Manager because well, it's sitting. It's the same. No, it's it. it, it uh, I, I know so because I have both. Oh. Yeah. So you actually install a package uh, called VPN plus server. So it has a built in VPN, but then a Synology provided package. You put a USB stick in to, to hold your packages. We all have an extra USB stick around so that I just put one of those in it, formatted it up. You're good to go. Uh, and this VPN plus will do all of what we'll call standard VPN, which includes the only router that I know of at the moment that supports L2TP, which is the best VPN option to use that's built into both iOS and Mac OS in terms of client support. So you don't need to add any apps to your Mac or your iPhone in order to connect to the L2TP VPN. It works great. Mm. So there's that. And then open VPN, of course it does support PP. Yeah, it does support PPTP, but that's like no, none of our clients support that anymore because it's too insecure, but the L2TP setup is like, painless you just type in you know the things you want and you're done and then on top of that it has synology vpn which don't doesn't exist to my knowledge in uh in disk station manager yet my guess is it, it probably will and this is like a web uh ssl based vpn it's a whole different thing you do need clients but um but it allows you all sorts of crazy management stuff and all of that too but uh as you can tell, I'm really excited about this. It's been a long time since I've been excited about the firmware of a router. I mean, it, you know, most of these routers do okay. And like, I mean, you know, like the Eero and and uh, well, that's really the best of the mesh right now in terms of firmware, because it just has enough features for, for most of us to, to, to use um, and do a little bit of geeky things. Luma's not too far behind, but they're a little bit far behind. Netgear is, I feel like the one... That, that's going to catch up and possibly surpass Eero and because the hardware's got some of that cool stuff I mentioned, but, um, but in terms of router firmware, I've, I try them all. This is like, like leaps and bounds beyond what anybody else is doing out there. And I'm really loving it. 
Um, the one thing I will complain about, and, and I've already shaken my fist at Synology about this, the QoS support. It has QoS support. It works. Except that it actually causes more latency and packet loss than not using it. So I, I go in and I say, you know, I've got whatever 200, let's say I've got 200 megabits down. I have a little more than that. 200 megabits down and 10 up, right? So I set the QoS at 190 down and nine up. Let's, let's just say, uh, and then I test my packet loss, you know, and, and, and ping times and all that without QoS, I get no packet loss and I get maybe, you know, 60 milliseconds increase in ping times, especially on an upload test. Okay, fine. With QoS, I start getting some packet loss when it hits the wall and I get maybe 80 millisecond increase in ping times. And I've asked them about this. I'm like, guys, what, what, uh, what queuing methodology are you using here? Because there are better queuing methodologies available in the software that you have on my router. Can I pick a different one? And they say, yes, we're going to, we're talking to our engineers about it. So. Yeah, because it has, I'm looking here, so it has a 1.7 yeah. gigahertz dual core processor. That's pretty... It's fast enough for, to do uh, to do this. For a router. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just neat. We just need to use the right QoS queuing methodology. We'll get them there. They're, they're very receptive to this kind of stuff. And of course, they've got forums. And remember, I mentioned that I installed the VPN plus server package from Synology. Well... There's third-party packages for the routers, too. There's not a whole lot for the 2600 yet because it literally just came out. But there's a ton of them for the 1900, like adding things like iPerf if you want that and, you know, other stuff. So I'm really, really stoked uh, on, uh, on this. And, of course, it has dynamic DNS support. Somebody in the chat room, Joel F., was asking, do you need a static IP on your WAN connection to do VPN? Absolutely not. No, you can use... Dynamic DNS. So, for example, and I'm not going to I'm not going to give you what my Synology.me name is, but you could potentially I could set up Dave Hamilton.Synology.me as my mapped, uh, you know, dynamic DNS address. That's not what I use, uh, but uh, but I could use that if somebody else isn't already. And then if I want to connect to a VPN, I just put in Dave Hamilton.Synology.me and it doesn't matter what my IP address, my router keeps Synology up to date and then that DNS looks looks up, but I can also use um, uh, 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 you know like no IP and Dyn DNS and all of that stuff. Synology supports all of those services. Oh, oh, and CloudStation server can run on this router. So for those of you that were thinking about getting a disk station so that you could have your own like private Dropbox thing, you still can do that. But CloudStation server runs on this, too. So you can hang a USB drive off of it, big as you want, and, uh, and point CloudStation at that. And now you've got, it's like Dropbox. There's apps for your Mac that just sync. You've heard us talk about CloudStation before. The router supports it natively. That's pretty cool stuff, John. I'm really, huh. as you can Let's tell. Look at this. And the WAN. Smart WAN. Yes. So they do load balances. Wow. That's, that's Right. Oh, no. We've had a lot of people. I don't know of any router. I mean, I know the Synology select Synologies, and I think I set mine up for that and then didn't. I think no, I you can, again. if you have two WAN connections, two, so this is weird, but you might have a connection from your ISP, for, you might have two ISPs, and I've heard of some people in Europe doing this, uh, because they only get an X amount of bandwidth from one and then X amount from another for a month. So you can, it, it's, you can have both of them connected to this at the same time, 
and you can set it up that it's for failover or for bandwidth usage. And you can, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it's crazy. Like I said, it's got, it's a really nice interface, but it's got some crazy features that, um, that let you do all this stuff. I love it. Anyway. So, uh, so what's the punchline? How, how much would you pay for such a product? It's only like, uh, like I said, I, I think I, my guess is it's going to settle in at like one ninety nine. But right now, if you want one, you're paying about two twenty five. Oh, wow. So, well, it's, I mean, look, compare that to the, like oh, the, no, the Nighthawk oh, wow, X8. That's not bad for it's all the not, features that they cram in there. That's what I'm saying. It's really not bad. Yeah. Yeah. You've got, you've got kind of a NAS light. Right. Where it's it's not quite a full fledged, you know, disk station, but you've got kind of some of those things and it's got a media server in it if you want to do that, too. And then this like total kick ass router. So, oh, yeah, I saw that DLNA. My, my favorite. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. It supports it supports DLNA. It supports SNMP if you want that, John. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. fun for people that want to poke poke their or talk to their router what are yeah, you but doing it, but it also does its own reporting like it'll tell you what device is mm -hmm. doing what and you can do parental controls by device and all of that stuff like i said the one part where it's a little weak is the qos is just a little weird um but it keeps it's better than it was with the rt 1900 i mean it's like the the software keeps evolving so it'll it'll get there it'll get there Sweet. like like for example i had a big problem with the the rt 1900 when i tested it because the only way I could enter in my internet speeds, and by the way, I shouldn't have to enter in my internet speeds. It should be testing them once a day and setting it automatically. So Synology folks, take that as a, a feature request. Yeah, yeah, I know some other people do that. Hero does it. Luma Hero does it. Does. Yeah, the other people, you should do this too, Synology. But um, the uh, when you entered it, the only way you could enter it was kilobytes per second. Now. If you're doing speed tests, you're getting speed in either kilobits or megabits per second. And I didn't think about this because I just saw it in the UI. I saw K with a capital B PS. And I thought, well, OK, I'll just put this in. And it caused all kinds of problems because I was putting in these impossibly high numbers <laughs> uh, for kilobytes. And then finally it hit me one day. I was like, wait a minute. They're not asking for kilobits. They're asking for kilobytes. So I had to do the math with the divide by eight and this, that and the other thing. And then it works out fine. Of course, Google will just do it, but you got to type in, you know, whatever kilobits per second or megabits per second to kilobytes. And then, and then it all works out and it's fine, but they changed it in the UI. Now in SRM, you can choose kilobytes if that's what you had before, or now you can choose kilobits for a different unit. So they're evolving this stuff. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. I, I remember having the same thing with TP link is that they would only allow inputting the uh, speeds in megabits per second. Okay. And you couldn't do half a megabit or something. Exactly. Yeah. The thing is I wanted to do like whatever point, whatever, because that was, you know, the threshold that I was trying to reach. And it's like, Nope, no decimal points. Yeah. Single digits only. Yeah. Which wasn't really the level of granularity that I wanted, but, um, all right, I'm going to we're on this router subject. We are going to break what would be one of my rules that we never really talk about. And that is we're going to have kind of extended segments on sort of the same topic, probably two weeks in a row, because I just I'm almost finished testing Google Wi-Fi. And literally yesterday, the new Linksys Velop stuff arrived and there's been some firmware updates to some of the other uh, mesh products. So we're going to do a little bit on mesh next week. I think we might put it off a second week, but I don't know. You let, you guys let us know if you want us to put that off a second week. Um, 
because I don't like to just obsess and turn this into either, you know, router geek gab or disk, you know, network attached storage geek gab or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, but we do have a couple of other things about routers to talk about. So while we're here, we're just going to keep doing it, John. And that is uh, listener Joe back to the concept of third party firmware highly recommends something called Utangle firmware, which is at utangle.com, U-T-A-N-G-L-E.com. Um, he says, uh, this is firmware you should really know about. Uh, he says, I have an industrial strength that yet eat home user, easy uh, Linux based thing. And uh, I'm trying to think of how, how, what the best way is to talk about this. He says, we're talking on par with Barracuda, SonicWall, et cetera, yet very affordable for the masses. I hear you mention good options to users for stout home protection. And frankly, this is in a different grade than the mainstream consumer brands out there. I wanted to ask you to plug you tangle because uh, from listening to some of their support videos, it's pretty clear. They're taking a financial gamble, sticking their neck out, trying to reach out to the home prosumer user. And so it's, what's interesting is it's just a firmware. You can install it on, uh, on your, like you can set up a little Linux box, but you can also buy sort of a, you know, I don't know if a raspberry Pi would run you tangle. It might, um, but they've got some some little boxes that you can buy to put it on and all that stuff. So we'll set, we'll put a link in the uh, in the show notes about this. Uh, and he says, yeah, the U25, which is a three port deck of cards sized, but no wireless is three ninety nine, a single antenna rig with Wi-Fi for four nineteen. So these are not inexpensive when you're in the com- consumer grade. And uh, so anyway, we'll put a link to Utangle in the uh, in the show notes here, because I think. I think perhaps there's there's something to that. We, we like to keep on top of everything, you know. One of that, and that that really was the reason I w- I was and still am a fan of DDWRT. Is ten years ago, it gave me features that I could not have in a uh, you know home Wi-Fi router like VPN. There was just no way to get that. Uh, nobody was offering that back then. It was only a couple of years ago that people started doing that. You know that kind of stuff you will see in these alternative firmwares, and they will come out. Uh, but DD Word has kind of flattened out in terms of that. They keep they keep everything up to date. So from a security standpoint, they're doing a fine job there with DDWRT. But in terms of features, like they added L2TP VPN because I asked them to when uh, when Apple sort of stopped using PPTP. But you need like a Windows machine to configure it and go through this whole mess. It's like they're just clearly not um, prioritizing the user experience anymore with DD Word. So. Um, but you tangles another one. Somebody else always steps in opportunity knocks from Bob, John, Bob, again, we're sticking with the router thing for a couple of minutes here. And then we have some other things to go through. Bob says recently, we changed our internet providers to time Warner cable. That gives me a dual band router. When we made that switch, we began having issues with our HP printer uh, to be recognized by our laptops. We didn't have this problem before. I could either turn off the Wi-Fi or the power on the printer and start it back up and it would work for one job. I can't imagine this old printer would work on the five gigahertz band, but they should be able to talk across bands since it's the same router. Even so, I made both frequencies have the same password so it acts as the same Wi-Fi no matter what. This did not fix the problem. I even turned off the five gigahertz band just to see if that was causing issues, but that didn't seem to help either. And in fact, now my printer won't connect via Wi-Fi at all anymore. I've turned five gigahertz back on. I've reset the Wi-Fi settings on the printer, but to no avail. The printer works fine when connected directly. 
Do you or your listeners have any ideas as to why this might be happening? Um, I think disabling the five gigahertz band rules out any of that band confusion that sometimes you hear about with, um, with, with dual band routers uh, and, and older devices like this. And this does sometimes happen. Um, I, I, here's the thing about that though. It would only happen if something like we just talked about with Synology with with the, the smart connect where the router was actually denying connections from a device uh, on one band, trying to move it to the other. If your printer doesn't support five gigahertz, your printer's not going to get confused because it's not going to see any other radio available, right? If the printer only supports 2.4 gigahertz, it's not going to see your five gigahertz radio. That's just how physics works. So, um, so unless your new router has some band steering in it, the, the router shouldn't have a problem. And I have heard people on the Synology forums that have, you know, kind of some older odd devices saying band steering wasn't working for them. They needed to turn that off or smart connect or whatever it was called. But, um, it's possible your printer needs to be factory reset, not just having the Wi-Fi reset. Uh, it could be looking for the MAC address of your old Wi-Fi um, access point. I have seen that. My my brother went through some of that when we set up the Luma at his house because of I, – I, for some reason, these printers, instead of just looking for Wi-Fi at an address, they start looking for – you know, the Mac address of the Wi-Fi access point that had that address. And sometimes it just doesn't work out all that well. So I think a factory reset, that's where I would start. Uh, any thoughts on that, John? Uh, I'm looking up the product on the HP site. Okay. Do, actually, they do have a, oh, getting started with wireless guide. Yeah. We reviewed that. They may, uh, they may dispense with some wisdom. Yeah. Kind of like you, like, yeah, reset this or reset that. Yeah, I, I would I would go with a factory reset of the printer uh, just to wipe everything out. And I realize it's a little bit of a pain in the neck, but it's a printer. There's not that many settings to to reconfigure. And most of those settings probably are stored on your individual computers, you know, your client devices um, as well. So, yeah, they have specific section here, solving wireless 802.11 problems. So, yeah, give that a whirl. Or maybe reinstall the uh, the driver software. Who knows? Well, if anybody out there has any thoughts, uh, yeah, I don't think it's a, I mean, it's not a driver issue. It, I mean, if the printer's not connecting to Wi-Fi, that has nothing to do with drivers on the clients. So it's it's just about getting the printer itself to connect to your Wi-Fi network. But I, I would re- reset the printer entirely. That that helped uh, when, my, when we moved my dad over to his Eero and also when we moved my brother uh, over to the Luma. He had a an Epson printer that that was giving him fits because of the kind of the different. Yeah, here we go. Here's how to solve the problem. How? They, uh, well, maybe, but uh, it seems this printer itself has a wireless network test on it. So within the control panel of the printer itself. Right. So, hey, run that and see what it, see what it complains about. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to have the ability to say, hey, here's what's wrong with my Wi-Fi. <laughs> but I suspect uh, your solution is... Uh, Hopefully, Basically, turn it off and on again. Yeah, well, not <laughs> just turn it of off. Turn it off, and, right? I, I know, reset. Yeah. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Make it, make it think it's it's new. Right, right. All right, and then um, an interesting thing from Roger. He got he upgraded uh, from whatever router he had previously to an Eero and started having weird problems when he was streaming. 
uh, you know, anything that was streaming for a while. And so he, and it was his modem resetting. And so he called up Eero and asked about this and, uh, and they asked him what kind of, they, you know, they worked through a bunch of stuff with him. And then they asked him what kind of modem he had. And he said he had an Aris 6183, which is a Doxis three modem 16 by four out there. Many, many, many of them. But as soon as he said that Eero said, Oh, Aris has identified that there is a bug in the firmware of the 6183 that for whatever reason causes problems when we're doing streaming. My guess is it has to do with the way Eero is, is uh, doing QoS because Eero's probably throttling things on the inbound uh, as it should to manage this QoS stuff. And perhaps the print, the, the, uh, the uh, cable modems buffers are filling up. I don't know. I'm guessing at all this, but, um, but that would make sense. And they said there's a bug in the firmware. Well, the only way you can update the firmware on your cable modem is to call your cable company. It doesn't matter if it's theirs or yours. They provide the firmware a hundred percent of the time. So you, he couldn't go to Eris and get this new firmware. He did call his cable company. They said they were going to push out a firmware update. It turned out to be the same update that or the same firmware that he already had. Uh, there is a support article at Eero talking about this and that you need a better firmware. But if your ISP doesn't have that firmware you know, certified in their system yet, you are not going to get it. And there is no way to get it. Um, so he wound up solving the problem by spending a little more money and upgrading to the Aris 6190, which is a 32 by eight cable modem, 32 download streams, eight upload streams. And, uh, and his problems were solved. Uh, I don't think the streams had anything to do with it. It just happens to be a, a more capable modem, but, um, but these things can happen. And, uh, and as much as it stinks to have to go and spend a little bit of money, um, Roger's solution uh, is certainly the fastest one in that scenario. There, there is literally nothing you can do if your cable company can't provide you the firmware for your modem uh, that's going to work. So just, just throwing that out there. Thank you for sharing that with us, Roger. Good stuff. Kind of crazy, but that's how it works. Along with the firmware from your cable company, comes a profile that tells your modem how fast to go so like if you get like you know i was saying before i get 200 megabits down and 10 megabits up well my cable company xfinity in this case it's my modem that decides how fast my connection is so there's some secure way of them pumping this profile into it that i can't go in and tweak and they set it to actually i think 242,000 kilobits per second and i don't know 12,488 kilobits per second on the upstream and so that way i get at least my 210 that they promised me, but it, that's just a little profile they send down with the firmware. So it's interesting stuff, how it all works, right? Yeah. I had fun watching. What's that? When yeah. I, uh, when I pled my case and they're like, um, right, right. They pushed the like, profile. Yeah. And they were like, uh, yeah, it should take about 20 minutes for it. Like, wow. Um, no, it's already done. <laughs> yeah, we're all set. That's right. <laughs> I mean, I watched it happening as I was on the phone with the representative is that they power cycled my modem. And I'm yep. like, ah, here comes the speed. Yeah. All right. So we got three, actually two questions and a tip that we're going to, we're going to make a tip sandwich here. Uh, Gary has a question. We're, we're, we're finished with the networking segment of the show. And he says, I bought an Apple watch series one sport from QVC and I am liking everything about it. The only problem I've had, I'm having now is before I got the watch, I used to be able to get my iMessage text messages on my Mac. 
My late 2015 iMac is running macOS Sierra 10.2. My iPhone 7 is running iOS 10.2. My Apple Watch is running watchOS 3.1. I'm getting all of my iPhone notifications on my watch just fine. But I really liked iMessages in the Messages app feature. If Apple is making us choose one or the other, then this deserves a double fist shake. No, that's not true. Apple's not making you choose. Uh, it is possible that this simply got disabled on your Mac. Uh, I and many of us are able to get our um, iMessage and SMS notification. And I'm not sure whether you say iMessages, but you, you might also mean SMS. I'm not sure which if it's both that aren't working or if it's just uh, just the one. But uh, but I'm able to get all of them on my Mac and on my watch when I'm wearing it all just fine. I bet the uh, kind of the link between it all got reset. So there's a couple of things to do first on your Mac, go into system preferences and iCloud and in there, make sure you are signed into the same iCloud account. I know this seems really obvious, but it's a good place to start. And then once you're signed in, launch messages on your Mac and go to uh, messages preferences and in the accounts section, which is, I think, the second one over, make sure that your iMessage account is attached to the same Apple ID. It should be and that it is enabled. Uh, a lot of times that won't happen. <laughs> and then that and then it becomes a problem. Make sure uh, that you have at least one phone number and one email address checked in the you can be reached at for messages here and then choose where you want to start new conversations and all of that and whether or not you want to send red receipts. Once you've got that in place, and if you didn't have any of that in place, then that would explain why all of this wasn't working. But once you've got that in place, now go to your iPhone and go to settings, messages, and inside there, you're going to want to go to text message forwarding. At this point, because you're signed into to both iMessage and iCloud from your Mac, you should see your Mac in this list. SMS or text message forwarding might not be on, though. If you want it on, turn it on and uh, and then you'll get all the green bubble messages on your Mac in addition to the blue bubble messages. And uh, if you turn it on, what will happen is your Mac will actually display a code that you need to then enter on your iPhone to confirm that you want to, you know, kind of complete the circle and do the link and everything should be OK. And if you did all of this or you looked and all of this was already done, guess what? Turn it off, turn it back on again. Uh, and that includes disabling the iMessage account on your Mac. Uh, if it's working on your phone, leave it on your phone. But in iMessage or in messages, settings, accounts, messages, preferences, accounts, uh, click the disable this account button, switch to a different account to force it to save, switch back to that one, click enable this account. That would, in theory, kind of rebuild that link between everything. There are lots of. Uh, security keys that need to be exchanged. And it's possible that your Mac just got off the off of Apple's list in that process. Right. Uh, I remember you and I going through that once. Yeah. Where I was like, but I'm logged in and, and I'm logged in with this account. Why am I not getting my messages? Oh yeah. Yeah. So you have to turn it off, trick turn it, it on, trick it into reestablishing. As you said, there's, there's all these session keys and, and private keys and public keys. Yeah, that's right. And it just gets confused. Sometimes. It just gets confused. Yeah. All right. A, uh, a quick little tip from uh, listener Mark, who says, I was listening to last episode, Mac Geek 641 on speeding up a listener's sluggish iMac. He says, you guys mentioned disc defragmenting uh, the hard drive 
in the show you recommended using a utility to do this, there is another way that is free. Copy files from the internal drive to a backup drive, erase the files from the internal drive, and then copy the files back again. I recommend using a tool like Carbon Copy Cloner to ensure a validated copy of the files is made before erasing them. And he's not necessarily talking about cloning the whole drive off and then wiping the whole drive, although that would also defragmenting defragment things. Um, but he's saying just defragment like your home folder and things in the, you know, applications and library uh, folders. If you're going to bother to do that, my feeling would be uh, this is, this is good advice to a point. I, it, the, a lot of the fragmentation does come from your, your home files and all of that. But I feel like just as much of it, especially over the period of years comes from your operating system upgrades as well and applications upgrades. And he includes that here. So I feel like uh, if you're going to go through this and do it this way, instead of using third-party software, just clone it, erase the drive and clone it back again. And then that way, everything's defragmented. Um, you've got kind of a fresh start. That's my feeling. Any thoughts on that, John? It is good advice. Uh, one, well, the statement, there's another way to do it that's free. Um, the thing is, I don't think Carbon Copy Cloner is free. So you'd have to pay for that. That's true. You could that's use right. Apple's. Now, you you could use Apple's. Could you? Yes. Could you do? Yeah. With this utility, I you guess could. you could also with do this utility. if you wanted to. Yeah. That's I right. get the sense, though, that, our, that um, Drive Genius does a some smart things whereas obviously it does copying you know copying files it doesn't really apply any intelligence to how it lays them out whereas uh, again I'm, I'm almost certain last i watched it that it's like oh, okay well let me put all this type of file here and this type of file here and right right so um yeah it's, it's good to mention a, a a thrifty option it certainly can't make matters worse <laughs> Well, I mean, and I, I hear why you hesitated. No, you're right. Completing this successfully certainly won't make things worse. It will defragment all each file and they will all be back the, you know, kind of the right way. Now, whether or not that's, you know, I don't know. We'll see. We shall see. All right. Um, last question. It's a good one, though. Uh, it should go pretty quick too. Bruce asks, he says, uh, let's say you bought an iMac six years ago that came with 10.6 installed. And six years later, that's still what's installed because of the processor in there. The highest OS you can upgrade to is 10.11, which is El Capitan. But you've never so-called purchased that through the app store. And he says so-called because he can't use air quotes in email and it's doesn't cost anything or it certainly it didn't uh he says so you have no way to download it and install it how do you proceed and this is a good question um john I, i'm curious as to your thoughts on this because my default answer is there's technically no way but the good news is that unlike every other thing you download from the app store os installers are not device or account dependent they may very well have your account baked into them, but someone can run these installers without your account, or at least that's been my experience with it. Um, so if you have a friend that has one of these installers archived and word to the wise, 
archive every certainly the first oh you know version of of each major os when you get the installer copy it off put it somewhere else i store them all on my disk station just so that if i find myself in this scenario i can fix it but if you have a friend that that has done this and you can get a copy of that installer from them i think you're probably technically violating some license somewhere uh i'm no attorney but my guess is that apple has better things to do then uh, prosecute people for sharing free software. That's that's my very unofficial, not legal advice, but I feel pretty good about saying it. It's wrong, but uh, I feel good about saying it nonetheless. But John, I feel like this is one of those questions where you're going to have a great answer. I do have a great answer. It's better than mine, isn't you, it? <laughs> uh, I, I think so, because it solves the problem. And That's the even answer, better. though, I think it, you know, again, license wise, I'm not sure if this is necessarily entirely within the spirit of what I'm about to mention. And okay. I'm going to keep going. Um, join the developer program for 99 bucks. Oh, right. Because if you go to developer and I'll tell you where you go. So you log into your account and then you click on downloads. And then they're going to give you a list of, of the, the latest hotness. But you want old and busted. You don't want the new hotness. You want old and busted. Well, if you scroll all the way down, so they show you things that they think you may want. But then if you scroll all the way down, it says, see more downloads. Well, I'm going to click and say, see more downloads. And then on the left, you're going to get categories. And one of the categories, Dave, is OS X. Really? And if, the right. list, and if you look at the list here, because the thing is developers... Uh, may need to test their stuff on an older version of the operating system. So Apple makes them all, well, not all of them available. I'm sorry, I lied. The earliest version that I see on their list here, I believe is Jaguar. So, you can, so they do not make available, easily available, I'm sure, if you asked real nice. So why would you even want it? <laughs> uh, but I think the, the latest version, yeah, is Jaguar. So you can click, you can download it sometimes they give you an app store code to kind of enable the download. I'm not sure if that's the case with all of these. Like I'm looking right now. So for so, example, so, so John, I, I think I have a solution that's even better than ours uh, to share. And yes. uh, yeah. And uh, data for nothing and bits for free in our chat room <laughs> sent us a link to a knowledge base article called uh, Upgrade to OS X El Capitan. And in that article, it talks about what Macs can run El Capitan, and it says how to get El Capitan. And it says, now that Mac OS Sierra is available, you should upgrade to Sierra instead of El Capitan. However, Bullet 1 says if your Mac doesn't support Sierra or you're using Snow Leopard and would like to run Sierra, you can get El Capitan from the App Store. And the best part is, get El Capitan from the App Store is a link to the App Store. And if you visit that secret little link, you can download OS X El Capitan on your account without doing Dave's illegal method or John's illegal method. And I think yours is far less illegal than mine. But Yeah, um, I mean, you're paying... Yeah, you're paying for it. it, right? But you can get it for free from the App Store. I am looking at a download OS 10 El Capitan page right here. And it says if you downloaded El Capitan from the App Store before 
Sierra became available, you can still reinstall El Capitan from the App Store and it brings you to a link. So we will put that link in our show notes because that's the best way of all. So thank you so much from uh, from data for nothing and bits for free in the in the chat room, because that's the uh, that's the trick right there. I didn't even realize that that was possible. I didn't either. I know. It's really nice of them. It's beautiful. Huh. Nice handle, too. Yeah, <laughs> it's good stuff. Very uh, dire straits. Very dire. He saved us from dire straits, John. <laughs> oh, that was good, right? <laughs> and that's a perfect time to bring in the band mm-hmm. playing a uh, Go Figure song, not a dire straits song, but, uh, but of good course, timing on the The other solution is to hoard things. I, I'm right. pretty sure I have every installer right. going, though... A caution with that is that there was a point where the certificates, so they, they include certificates in the installers for security and all that stuff. There was a point where they expired and you had to re-download the installer, several of the installers. So right, your old installers right, right. may not work and that's why. Right, right. It's good stuff. Uh, we mentioned earlier that we would like you to contact us but we didn't tell you how feedback at macgeekgab.com is the best way for you to do that you know i thought i heard you say feedback at macgeekgab.com i did i said feedback at macgeekgab.com and uh you can also download os10 snow leopard you know from the app store uh, alex found the link for that and so we'll put that in the show notes too because we just can't help ourselves uh, and those email addresses are right, but if you're a premium subscriber, like we talked about in the beginning of the episode, then you get to use premium at MacGeekGab.com as your email address. And that's a pretty wonderful thing. And we really appreciate it when, uh, when you do support us as a premium listener. We really appreciate it. Like, amazingly so. If you can't or aren't interested, that's okay, too. But if you can and you are interested, MacGeekab.com slash premium. It really does make a difference for uh, for John and I here. Any of you are welcome to call or text our voice number or our phone number, I should say. And that is 224-888-GEEK, which, John, is? 4335. And just hope that Hector D. Bird doesn't answer the phone. <laughs> Hector's crazy. She now says hola when we come in the house because I guess we speak too much. Uh, it's not too much, but we speak a lot of Spanish at home. So so she says hola to me when I walk in the, in the house now. So very nice of her. Uh, you can follow Hector on Twitter at Hector D. Bird, B-Y-R-D. You can follow John on Twitter at uh, John F. Braun. You can follow the show on Twitter at Mac Geek Gab. You can follow Mac Observer on Twitter at Mac Observer. You can follow me on Twitter at Dave Hamilton. I'd like to thank all of you. Uh, I want to thank our premium listeners that helped us out uh, in this show. That was Bruce, Mark, Gary, Roger, and uh, Brian toward the beginning there. I want to thank everybody in the chat room at slash stream for helping us out today. I want to thank you for listening today. Yes, you. You know who you are. No, no, no. No. That person right there. <laughs> That's the one. Very special human you are. Thank you. I want to thank Cashfly, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com for providing all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you. 
I want to thank our sponsors, of course, Blue Apron at blueapron.com slash MGG. I want to thank Fat Cat Software, makers of Power Photos at fatcatsoftware.com slash MGG. I want to thank Smile Software, or Smile, sorry, at smilesoftware.com slash MGG. I want to thank the good folks at Otherworld Computing, macsales.com, of course, Barebones Software at barebones.com, and GoDaddy at godaddy.com. Coupon code MGG saves you and me 30% on everything new you buy there. Have a great week, folks. Have fun. And don't get caught. Made up.